0: Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve the revenge you need. And how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content. So if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, part four of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 27. It's Sunday morning and we sit in a pew at church. People cast inquisitive glances our way. Nancy and her family are directly across the aisle from us. She keeps looking our way, too, but more expectantly than questioningly. The pastor gets to the portion of his sermon where he offers blessings and prayers. The last one is for us. And let us bless our angel, Nicholas, and his parents, and give them the strength to forgive the one who took him from us now that his soul is in God's hands for judgment. Rebecca whispers in my ear, I want to go. It's almost over, I whisper back. The sermon ends and Nancy approaches. How are you two? We've been praying for you ever since we heard the news last week. It was me that asked the pastor to include that last prayer. I'm not feeling well. We're going to go home, Rebecca replies curtly. She turns and walks out the far side of the pew. I follow, catch up, and take her hand in mine. She shakes it off. 28. I'm watching TV. I see Rebecca pass through the hallway wearing her coat. Where are you going? Out, she says. Do I need your permission? No, just asking. I'm meeting Amy from the group. Oh, okay. Have a nice time. I will. She gives me that smirk that means I'm an idiot and leaves. My phone rings. I answer. Hello? The voice on the other end says my name, and I reply. Speaking. This is Eric Goldman from the District Attorney's Office. We met briefly during Anthony Vitale's trial. I remember, I reply snidely. I'm sure you've heard that he was killed last weekend. Yes. Well, I wanted to let you know that the police may be wanting to question you. About what? Well, nothing really, just a formality. I mean, technically you have a motive. My wife and I have been working hard to put all that behind us. Wife? I thought you two were divorced. We are. I I mean, we're trying to reconcile. Oh, I understand. That's good to hear. I just wanted to give you a heads up because the police asked me about the case and, well, I feel bad that we didn't have enough to put them away. I don't want you to feel like they're seriously thinking you could have done it. It was clearly a mob hit, but you didn't hear that from me. Hear what? Thank you. Just wanted you to know that it's just procedure. Nothing more. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Goldman. Sure. Sorry to disturb you. Goodbye. Good. I disconnect the call before he can complete his farewell. I notice my hands are shaking. The police. I've been putting off getting rid of the cameras and ice pick. I didn't want to draw attention to myself in the aftermath of Vitaly's death. But now I feel I have to dispose of them. What if they have a warrant? I grab my coat, leave my cell phone on the coffee table, and calmly walk out to my car. In the wheel well of the trunk, where there normally is a spare tire, I have hidden the knapsack with the cameras and ice pick, along with the wiped laptop, a gallon of bleach, a ball-peen hammer, and a blowtorch. I drive to a forest preserve about 30 miles away. I've been there once or twice before. It's the kind of place that attracts a big crowd of kids on the weekend, looking for a place to drink beer and hook up. It's as I remember it, overflowing with garbage. Mine is the only car there on a weeknight. It'll be dark soon, the park officially closes at sunset, but the gate to this picnic area is broken. There are rusty charcoal grills bolted to posts anchored in the ground with cement. I lay the knapsack on the ground and pound the cameras inside the bits with the hammer. When I can no longer feel any pieces bigger than a pea... I drop the knapsack into one of the grills and light the blowtorch. The canvas of the knapsack must have some type of flame retardant since it takes a while to burn it to ash. The camera pieces melt into slag. I burn the handle of the ball-peen hammer, too. I drop the ice pick into the grill and char its wooden handle. I hold the torch on the metal spike until it's red-hot. Then I douse everything with the bleach. A noxious gas fills the air, and I step away quickly, feeling lightheaded. I wait till a breeze clears the air then gather the ash and slag and the remnants of the hammer and ice pick into a heap and slide it onto a piece of cardboard I fished out of the trash. I follow the road past the pavilions to a boat launch next to a murky, smelly river and heave the stinky slush as far out into it as I can. The laptop, which I've carefully purged of any traces of what it was used for and drilled holes into until any information was unrecoverable, follows, making a loud splash and bobbing in the current for a moment before sinking out of view. I rinse my hands in the fall water, then again under a pump near one of the covered pavilions. Dusk descends as I pull out of the parking lot. I'm still alone. No one sees me come, carry out my evidence destruction, or leave. Finally, something goes exactly to plan. 29. The detective sits on a chair. Rebecca and I are opposite on the sofa. He sets the glass of water Rebecca got for him on a coaster, then pulls out a notebook, just like they do on TV. Okay, like I said, this is just a formality. I hate to ask, but where were you on the morning of May 11th of this year, between the hours of 3 a.m. and 4 a.m.? We were at the Sierra Winds Resort down on Route 34, Rebecca replies. You were together? Yes, I answer. Anyone see you there? I think for a moment. There was the clerk in the office. He checked us in and then was still there when we got back from dinner. We left right at checkout time the next day. You got a receipt or anything? Rebecca and I look at each other. She answers. I don't know if we kept it, but it'll be on my credit card bill. We can look for it if it's important. No, that's fine. Like I said, just a formality. I've got what I need. He gets up. We rise also, and all of us move toward the door. Do you mind if I ask where you were when you heard? At the resort still, I tell him. Seems like everyone we knew was watching the news and started calling us. Yeah, I guess they would. Just so you know, I was at the station when the news came in. There's a bit of a cheer, actually. Real scumbag, that guy. This is one of those cases I really don't give a shit if we solve. Let those thugs kill each other, right? I nod. Sorry for your loss. Your boy, I mean. I hope you get some peace out of this. Thank you, Rebecca says. He lets himself out and disappears down the hallway. Once he's gone, I wait almost a whole minute before taking a breath. I think that's it. We're in the clear. Rebecca sighs with relief and smiles. She gives me a quick kiss and a tight hug. I knew he would be. Thank you. If I had planned this whole thing, I'd be sitting in jail right now. Orange is the new black, I add jokingly. She pushes away and gives me a playful rebuke. Okay, Mr. Master Assassin. If you're so good, tell me, how would you off that guy who poisoned Amy's family? The best killer burgers in the state guy? Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me, if that guy had killed Nick... I find myself pulling together various thoughts in my mind. Well, I think Amy had the right idea. But instead of a gas can, maybe start a grease fire. The way she described that place, it probably would only take a match or two to set it on fire. But how do you make sure he gets incinerated along with the place? I think about that for a moment. Tie him up with rags, or a greasy apron. Something that wouldn't leave any marks, but would burn away once he caught on fire. Douse him with grease, light him up. Let him run around till he falls down. Just a charred skeleton. Guy probably drinks all day long. He'll burn like a gas lamp wick. And how do you get him to sit still long enough to tie him up? Surprise him. Get there when the place is empty, maybe after the lunch crowd. Sit at a table. When he takes your order, jump him from behind, knock his head on the floor, or smack him with a chair. With any luck, he'll be in shock long enough to get something around his wrists and ankles. The coroner would think the injuries happened in the fire. Then it hits me. She's been spending a lot of time with Amy. Did you tell her? I ask. Who? I don't answer her question. She knows full well who and what I'm talking about. I had to tell somebody, she confesses. She won't say anything. I'm furious. To our graves. We agreed we would take this to our graves. What does she know? A pause. Pretty much everything. What? She was so amazed that we actually did it. She pressed me for every detail. Rebecca, I I can't believe this. We swore. I collapse on the sofa, my mind racing with the notion that the truth would spread on whispers through the group. And someone, probably Barb, would get wind of it and wouldn't be able to keep quiet and would tell the police. Rebecca sits next to me, rubs my arms reassuringly. She's not going to tell anyone. She just wants some help. Oh, Jesus. Help, I ask. She wants to kill Cooper. We've been putting together a profile, just like you and me did with Vitali. Nothing on paper, all in our heads. She's been there enough times to know what the place looks like. She's even been inside. No, stop. She's going to do it whether we help her or not. No, stop her. We barely got away with it. She needs to do it. She needs to kill him. We need to help her. No, I need to help her. She's pleading now. I look in her eyes and see that same desperate drive she had when we visited Nick's grave. Why? It's what we're supposed to do. It's why we found the group. It's a reason to go on. It's too risky. He's in a whole different state. There's no chance to establish an alibi. But we don't need one. Who would suspect us? We can't. We're not killers. She looks at me, puzzled. Yes, we are, she states. We are killers. Cold-blooded murderers. We killed Vitali. You know we can do it. We have to do it. For Amy. So she can have the peace we have. Peace? How is going on a killing spree peace? If you don't want to help, I'm going to do it on my own. No. Rebecca crosses her arms. Her mind is made up. She would do it on her own. Or worse, take Amy with her. I have no choice. I sternly make a hasty ultimatum. We take no chances. We have to do it exactly as I say. If we get there and everything is not perfect, if one thing is not according to the plan, we walk away. I promise. You're in charge. If you say we walk, we walk. I consider. I run the plan I sketched out for Rebecca over my head, smooth out the rough edges, figure in a couple contingencies. It could work. We could be in and out in minutes. And she's right. Why would anyone suspect us? We could do this. My God, I am a killer. Todd. One. Rebecca, Amy, and I sit around Amy's kitchen table. I question her relentlessly about every detail she has on Buck Cooper and his little roadside diner. She uses knives and forks and salt and pepper shakers to illustrate the layout of the place. I get her to describe the roads leading to and from, where the nearest intersections are, farmhouses, gas stations, everything she can think of. Both she and Rebecca are getting impatient. It's been two weeks since Rebecca got me to agree to this, and they want to get on with it. I insist that there must be some time between our killing and hers. The people in the group know we're friendly with each other, and may start jumping to conclusions, however correct they may be, regarding the synchronicity of the deaths of the monsters who killed our children. They don't care, and assume that everyone in the group, if they had such suspicions, would keep them to themselves. Everyone will assume it's a happy coincidence. When it rains, it pours. I see it differently. Each lapse in judgment, each mistake in planning, led to potentially fatal errors when we killed Vitali, It was mere luck that kept us from getting caught, and I don't want to leave anything to chance this time. Amy wants us to take pictures, or better yet a video. I absolutely forbid it. We don't make any type of recording or leave any traces. There must not be anything that could potentially tie us to the scene. If all goes well, this is going to look like an accident just in case. Amy is going to establish an alibi, spending the weekend with her sister. No credit cards is my other absolute rule. Rebecca and I purchased stuff online for the Vitali killing, albeit through several proxies, but I always thought that was a weak link in the plan. We can do it this weekend, Rebecca tells Amy. I look at her. She looks back challengingly. I've known her long enough to know when not to even start an argument. All right, but if we do it now, you can't tell the group until next month. What? Amy asks. Why? Think about it. This is an accidental fire and death in another state, in a rural area. How would you find out about it? In a month or so, you do one of your drive-bys and come back to the group with a smile on your face. The fucker burned himself to death. Fry cook gets fried. Poetic justice. Agreed, I ask, or rather demand. Agreed, Rebecca answers, then looks at Amy, who hesitates. Or else we wait, I insist. Amy thinks about it for a minute, then nods. Agreed. 2. My boss presses me again to bring Rebecca to his house for a weekend barbecue. I tell him we're planning another getaway and ask for a rain check. He demands that I commit to the following week, or else his wife will have his head. I relent. At work, I have a new virtual machine that I keep on and an encrypted USB key. When I plug it in, I can use it to cover my tracks like I did with the previous version on the server. Now digital history but there will be no footprint left behind anywhere for nosy junior admins to stumble across. I pull up satellite maps of the area around Cooper's diner and memorize every road, every path, every fence line. I scour the internet for information on Cooper himself, but he does a good job of living off the grid. From the overhead views, it's obvious there's a residential building in the back of the diner, where Cooper likely lives. There's nothing in Amy's intelligence that indicates there's anyone else living there. If we get there and discover that there is, we walk away. This is a very different scenario from the Vitali killing. That one we made to look like a murder, which wasn't a stretch since that's what it was. This one has to be an accident. Part of me hopes he dies when I smash his head against the floor in our initial attack. But Amy is adamant about him burning alive. I tell her we'll do our best, but no promises. Our first priority is getting away with it. There are no style points if we are in jail. I pull the USB key out of the port on the server and clip it back onto my keychain not an unusual accessory for a computer guy. It's time to call it a day. Time to head back home. It's Thursday, and there are a couple shows on TV that Rebecca and I like to watch together, like we used to. There has not been any more sex since we killed Vitaly. She hasn't offered, and I haven't asked. Part of me is afraid to. I don't want to push the issue. That awkwardness that existed between us after Nick's death is gone, but there are other barriers still up. The last couple weeks have been good, though. Rebecca is genuinely excited about killing Cooper, and her enthusiasm is a bit contagious. I step out of the office into the late spring evening. The air is fresh, like after a rainstorm. The sun is at the point where it casts a golden glow over everything, like a sepia-tone Instagram filter. And it hits me. What the hell am I doing? Killing Vitali made sense, in a way, but it also had a purpose, personal to me. This plan to kill Cooper... This is Amy's shadow. How did it become ours? What if we refused? Would she feel spurned enough to make an anonymous call to the police about the Vitali murder? I've spent so much time and effort making sure my plan has a way out at every conceivable point that I've neglected to make sure I had a way out of the plan itself. Is this what my life has come to? Computer guy slash contract killer? Hell not even a contract killer. Strictly speaking, I'm an unpaid amateur. A year ago, I would have adamantly derided the notion that I'd kill another human being, let alone two. I find my lack of revulsion at the notion now a bit disconcerting. True, they deserve it. They are not innocent victims of circumstance, but callous killers with no remorse for their actions. But isn't that what I am now? I sense that Rebecca and Amy might be planning to help out another member of the group. I swear to myself that this is the last time. After Vitaly's death, I finally felt like I could go on living. Maybe even enjoy life a bit. But Cooper, I'm doing out of what? Sympathy for Amy? Concern for Rebecca? Because I want to? Because I want that feeling of handing out justice to someone who undeservedly avoided it? Is that how I'm justifying it to myself? Is it a way to cover the possibility that I get a thrill from killing? From planning the perfect crime? Am I willing to do anything to feel closer to Rebecca, the way we did after killing Vitali? I reach my car and vomit onto the pavement. I catch my reflection in the side-view mirror and see the face of a specter who's been haunting me since Nick's death. How long has he been hiding in the shadows, waiting for an excuse to come out and kill? 3. It's early morning. As I drive, I go over the plan with Rebecca. She is weary of hearing me repeat the same situational contingencies over and over again. So am I, but... I am determined that nothing will surprise me this time, and that there won't be any needless errors. We have four hours of driving ahead of us, and I intend to use every minute of it, making sure we are prepared. Five minutes later, Rebecca shuts down. She stops responding to my questions, reaches into her bag, and pulls out her phone and earbuds, and literally tunes me out. She reclines her seat and closes her eyes. We approach an exit, and I think about making a U-turn and returning to our apartment. But I know the cost of that action is too high. I imagine Rebecca getting into her car with Amy and carrying out the plan without me, getting caught, and all of us going to prison. I drive on. An hour and a half later, I stop for gas. Rebecca is sleeping, or at least pretending to, and the cessation of motion is enough to rouse her. Where are we? she asks, rubbing her eyes. Gas, I answer. I'm going to grab a Coke or something. You want anything? She undoes her seatbelt and opens the passenger door. I want to stretch my legs. We head into the mini-mart. I give the clerk some cash for the gas while Rebecca browses among the rows of chips and candy. When I'm done pumping, I walk into the shop and grab a small bag of mixed nuts on my way to the drink cooler. I pick out an energy drink in a big can and look around for Rebecca. I don't see her right away. She's not in the food aisles. Instead, I find her in the automotive supply and tools section. She hefts a heavy wrench in her hands, then sets it down and tries out a few different sized sledgehammers. What are you doing? I ask. She turns to me, smiling, holds up a hammer. What do you think? They should make a good dent in his skull. I take the hammer from her hands, put it and the food I was going to buy down on the nearest shelf, then guide her out and back to the car. I open the passenger side door for her and she gets in, shooting me a quizzical look. I get in the driver's side, start the car, and head back to the highway. What were you thinking? I ask. What? The plan is to use something at the diner. If we bring anything that doesn't belong, it could be noticed, traced. We can't take that chance. Okay, Mr. Stick to the Plan. Sorry. I'm not being this way to annoy you. We have to be careful. I know. I just hate it when you dismiss any ideas I have. What do you mean? I asked, confused by her comment. I mean, this whole plan, every step of it is yours. You didn't like any of my ideas or Amy's. Why does everything have to be your way? It's not about my way or your way. It's about not getting caught. And you're the only one smart enough to come up with any ideas that don't get us caught? No. Sure seems that way. Come on. We can't do this if you're going to be mad at me. Of course not. That's not in the plan. My grip on the steering wheel tightens as I struggle to keep from shouting. That's not what I meant. I'm sorry. It's just, you know me. I'm a bit of a control freak. These are the words I say when I want to change the trajectory of an argument with Rebecca. I confess the flaws she sees in me. Next, I blame myself and insist it's out of concern for her. After Vitaly and the whole thing with the woman, I'm just on edge. It has nothing to do with you. I'm just afraid there's going to be something I didn't think about. And I don't want anything to happen to you. I couldn't live with myself. Sometimes this works. I wait to see how she reacts. It's okay, she finally says. I want us to be in this together, though. Partners. I don't want to be your assistant or whatever. I want to be your equal. You're right. I haven't been treating you like I should. I'm sorry. I'm just... I guess I'm afraid. I've been asking so much of you, she says. First Vitali, now Cooper. And you've been great. You really have. I really appreciate what you've done. Not just anyone could have pulled it off. You've been really smart and careful about it and I've wanted to rush in and just do it. I can understand that. I certainly have felt that way, too. I need to clear my head. I think the constant talking about it is what's really got me annoyed. Can we talk about something else? Of course, I tell her. i launch into a long retelling of the progress I've been making at work, how my boss constantly insists that we come over for a barbecue, how there might be a management position opening up in the near future. She tells me how I totally would be great for that, I have a natural skill for managing projects and working with people. And killing them, I add. Best to leave that part off your resume, she jokes. We settle back into a ridiculous conversation about an imaginary job interview, where I explain our unusual hobby and the interviewer finally ends up offering me his job. It raises both our spirits. I take the exit that leads to Cooper's Diner. It's another forty-five minutes on rural highways. I am scrupulous about obeying the speed limit and coming to a complete stop at every red light and stop sign. Rebecca teases me about only being a good driver when I'm about to commit murder. I assure her I'd be just as careful for a mere bank robbery, or even if I was driving to my accountant's office to cheat on my taxes. 4. I almost missed Cooper's Diner as we drive by it the first time. The place really is a tiny little shithole. There are several cars and trucks in the weedy gravel patch that serves as a parking lot including Cooper's F-150. It's a mystery why he spends money on a new truck while his restaurant is run down to the point of being condemned. I have several routes that will take me in wide circles around Cooper's place. It's just after one in the afternoon, and the lunch crowd should be winding down about now. Didn't see the best burgers in the state sign, Rebecca remarks. Someone probably ran it over. She laughs. We mustn't get relaxed to the point of being careless, but I'm glad we aren't at each other's throats. It takes two drive-bys before Cooper's customers are gone. We pull into a far corner of the parking lot that is mostly obscured from the road. There is an empty cardboard box that I position next to the car to hide the license plate. I take Rebecca by the hand and we walk toward the diner. Remember, if anyone comes, we have to walk away, I remind her. I know, she reassures me. 5. Inside, the place is exactly as one would imagine it. There are a lot of neon beer signs, mismatched chairs and tables, and a counter that doubles as a bar. Cooper sits at the counter, paging through a car magazine. He glances up when he hears the screen door slam shut behind us. He sizes us up. I nod and lead Rebecca to one of the cleaner tables. There are four chairs at it, perfect for our purpose. still serving lunch, I ask, "Hm," mm, he answers unresponsively. We sit. The menus are worn eight-and-a-half-by-eleven sheets of paper folded in half. I pluck two out of the clip on the napkin holder and hand one to Rebecca. Cooper walks up, a pad in one greasy hand, and he pulls a stub of a pencil from behind his ear with the other. What can I get you? I already know what I'm going to order before I look at the menu. Burger. Rare. He looks to Rebecca. She makes a show of scanning the entire menu before responding. I'll have the chili, she says, with a Diet Coke. Two diets, I add. He doesn't bother to jot the order on his pad. He simply sticks the pencil back behind his ear and turns to the counter. This is it. This is my chance. Time slows down. I turn my head to look at the parking lot through the grimy windows. Ours is still the only car there, and there is no traffic on the road. I rise, taking a step toward Cooper while grabbing one of the empty chairs between him and me. The chair is fairly heavy, but I manage to raise it above my head as I continue closing the distance between the clueless fry cook and myself. Using my forward momentum, the weight of the chair, and all the strength I can muster, I bring the chair heavily down on the back of his hair-slicked skull. The blow knocks both him and me off our feet. I crash to the floor, landing awkwardly on my left arm. I hear a loud snap and pain explodes from my elbow through my shoulder all the way up to my neck. I look over at Cooper. Blood trickles from the wound in his head, but he's still conscious and moaning. Rebecca sees that I'm not getting up and rushes to my side. Are you all right? I think I broke my arm, I tell her. What do I need to do, she asks. Get out is my first reaction, but I know that is not an option. If we leave him alive, he'll be able to describe us to the police. We have to go forward. Tie up his hands. Use his apron strings. Rebecca nods and crosses over to Cooper kicking the chair now laying across his back aside. It didn't splinter into pieces like it would in the movies. It's solid wood, but she manages to move it easily. She kneels on his back, keeping him from moving, as she quickly wraps his hand securely with the frayed strips of fabric at the back of his stained apron. While she does this, I manage to get to my feet. Any movement in my arm is excruciating. I tuck my left hand between the buttons on the front of my shirt, creating a makeshift sling to keep my arm still. That helps. Rebecca looks to me expectantly. What do we do next? She asks. I try to call the plan up in my mind, but my thoughts are interrupted by flashes of pain. His feet, I manage to say. Need to tie up his feet, too. Rebecca looks around for something to tie him up with. I see a dish rag on the counter. The dish rag, tear it into strips. While Rebecca sets to making bindings for his feet, I take another look at the parking lot. Still clear. No one is coming. I cross to behind the counter. The fryer is full of hot oil. I check the grease collection bin under the griddle. It is nearly full. I slide it out with my good arm and manage to drag it across the floor around the counter. It splashes a bit, but that's okay. Rebecca has Cooper's feet bound and comes to help me. Pour about half of it on him. Spread it out. Then we'll need to turn him over. Rebecca picks up the bin, heavy with gallons of grease, and hauls it over to where Cooper lies. She douses his back. Then I use my good arm to help her roll him over, and she pours more grease over his face, chest, and groin. He is still groggy, but his eyes open and look up at me. He looks exactly like Vitali did that night not so many weeks ago, when I turned him over in his bed to stab him in the heart with an ice pick. He moans, but doesn't question what happened or why he's tied up. Likely he doesn't realize it yet. After all, he has a visible dent in his head. I stand up and Rebecca splashes the remaining grease on the floor and furniture as we walk back to the kitchen area. I grab another rag and start wiping every surface I can remember touching, and others that I might have touched. I see what constitutes the bar area. There are some bottles of high-proof whiskey. I pick one up with the dish rag and break it over the stove. I smash another on the counter. Hand me one of those, Rebecca requests. I hand her a third bottle wrapped in a rag. She carries it to Cooper, smashes the top off the bottle and empties it over him. Then she tosses the bottle aside and uses the rag to wipe off the chair I smashed him with, and sets it back at the table where we were sitting and cleans everything at the table as well. I look around the kitchen for matches and find some on a shelf. I bump my injured arm reaching for them and they spill over the stove. I feel lightheaded. The combination of the pain and the fumes from the liquor set me back on my heels. I spy the doorway in the back of the diner that leads to what I assume are his living quarters. I take a step and nearly stumble. Rebecca arrives at my side. She puts my good arm over her shoulder. We have to check the back. No surprises. Rebecca nods and leads me to the doorway. I push it open with a foot. Inside is a medium-sized room with a bed against one wall, an enormous flat-screen TV on another, and a stained easy chair facing it. The floor is littered with empty beer cans, cups, snack food wrappers, and dirty clothes. There is no sign of any other inhabitants, no indication of a female presence. I sigh, relieved and satisfied that our due diligence has paid off. Ready? Rebecca asks. I nod. There are a few matches clutched in my hand. I offer them to Rebecca. Has to start in the kitchen. Rebecca takes the matches and lays me back to the counter. She strikes one on the underside of a stool and tosses it on the stove. The alcohol-laden grease catches fire easily, then spreads down to the floor. Blue and orange flames dance and spread quickly. More quickly than I had imagined they would. Smoke quickly fills the space. It stings my eyes and burns my lungs. We need to get out of here. Come on, Rebecca says, pulling me after her. I catch a lungful of noxious fumes and immediately lose my balance. My arm smashes against the edge of the counter. The pain is blinding and I suck in another deep breath of the smoke that is quickly filling the restaurant. The room goes black. The last thing I remember is falling. Thank you for listening to The Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's Fiction podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of Paranormal Mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Runnick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.